Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 308 is recorded live November 24th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I think we are settling down into the Great Lakes because of all the food eaten today. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing well. I feel like a stuffed turkey. <laughs> but other than that, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. I know what you mean. I, I, I overtook a little bit more than I definitely should have. Also joining us this, this week, we have Dave Tonneman. How are you doing today, Dave? Doing well, Darren. I'll agree with Mac uh, on the stuffed part. <laughs> it, it almost seems to be an obligation. Uh, before the show, I was talking, and it's been a couple years. The pre- previous two years, I had done better. But uh, today, I don't know. I think it's because I didn't have to travel between families. That seems to to uh, consume more calories, maybe, or I don't eat as much. But you know, the 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 eight foot walk from the dining room table to the couch to watch foot, the required football, then back to the the table, I. Uh, think i consumed much more than uh is really reasonable well i feel obligated to make sure the the cooks are not insulted with my oh. lack of participation <laughs> so uh as a quick informal poll what kind of food does your family do for thanksgiving mac uh well today we did turkey and ham or yeah turkey and ham is the primary and then you always have your obligatory mashed potatoes and gravy uh we had a cheese casserole we had meatballs. Uh, we had, of course, cranberries, but the real cranberries. Mm-hmm. Um, God, what else did we have? I had a little bit of everything. Beans, three different pies. Jeez, um, of course, rolls. Not to mention the appetizers ahead before you start. Oh. <laughs> which is, you know, shrimp. Oh. Uh, cookies, chocolates, cheeses, crackers. We could feed a small arm ass of folks. And, and how about you, Dave? What's the uh, food affair? The menu, for... the menu mimics Max almost to a T, um, although we did have the uh, the dolphin-free cranberries. Oh, you, so you, you, you went sans dolphin on the cranberries. That's nice. Well, yes. I think we all did, didn't we? I, I, I made a point to make sure that happened. There may have been As some. We may have had some dolphin in ours, but I, I, I picked the dolphin out. Pretty much almost verbatim what, uh, what Mac posted up there is his menu. Uh I think there was a green bean casserole in there, and there was a uh, some kind of a sweet potato casserole, uh, but uh, pretty much the standard menu that uh, Mac mentioned. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Uh, other than we, we didn't do ham, uh, not quite enough people, I think, for ham. My, my, my side of the family is fairly small. My sister brought her boyfriend with her. First time we got to meet him. They're from Louisiana. Uh, nice state. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's talking about his friends down there in scuba diving. He's he says in the river visibility is only about two or three inches. So I said, Yeah, that's that sounds about right. What part of Louisiana? Oh, you'd have to ask me a tough question like that. Uh, I want to say near Freeport. Does that make sense? Okay. Is that a place? Could uh, be. I'll, I'll have to. Oh, actually, I got his business card right here. 
Um, if you're in Louisiana, you probably know. He has a TV program that he's on. So whatever LUS Fiber Channel 4 is or Cox Cable or Channel 15 or 9. <laughs> so I don't I don't know if that says anything. But we, we didn't do the ham. Uh, I We did make some sweet potatoes. We had that. The cranberries, we, we've done the same thing. Even though it kind of does feel like you're... It's not a real Thanksgiving without the canned uh, cranberry because there's something about that can shape on a plate that just says Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, but we, I, I say I did. My wife uh, made the real cranberries. Uh, I did the the sweet potatoes, and then uh, for dessert I made a pecan pie. I have to say I, I'm I'm getting pretty good at that after a couple dozen years of of making it. I I think I've got that one down. Nothing wife- like sugar, 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 and nuts. My wife would trade the pumpkin for the pecan anytime. I like my pumpkin pie with whipped cream. Yeah. yeah. My mom made pumpkin pie. My my son absolutely loves it. One year, my mom didn't make the pumpkin, and they did cheesecake. And I, I, I think my son was a little heartbroken that year. So he now makes sure to, weeks in advance, remind everybody that there's going to be a pumpkin pie. Well, optimally, you have a turtle pie and a Ooh. pumpkin pie, and you eat them together, and you have turtle pumpkin pie. Ooh, yeah. We, we did we did the pumpkin and the pecan, and then I I miss my aunt. She doesn't, they're, they're getting up there in age, and they don't come down, but she used to do a mincemeat, and she actually used to make the mincemeat herself. So, and, and that's uh, it's one of those things that once you realize what's in it, uh, it is kind of scary. <laughs> but the, but the mincemeat, she does, hers is dolphin-free as well, so that's that's good. Well, that's a plus. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, my mom makes a peanut butter and chocolate fudge. It's like it's like it's like a peanut butter mix, and then she puts a dark chocolate layer on top and then puts it in the freezer. That's my wife's absolute favorite. Uh, so good, yeah. It's a, for those outside the United States, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but this is our Thanksgiving Day holiday. The nice fake made-up holiday positioned just perfectly for the retailers to have some extra shopping weekends. Uh, it's always fun now. Now you got in the, the pol- political world, you have two sides as to what's the real story of it. And I want to say that neither of them are right because I think it's all made up. Nobody even remembers anything back that back that far. I'd like to thank everybody who's been tuning into the program, also those who happen to see us on the ch- in the chat room. We have been recording pretty close to 9 p.m. on Thursdays. Talk Show 73759. So thank you once again. I'd also like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air. They they give us a few time slots. I'll have to look up, see what we are. They, they think they've got us stationed pretty regular. So if you listen to RVO Radio, we come on a couple times during the week and they broadcast us. Uh, thank you once again for them putting us on the air. And if you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, they have other programs that you may want to tune into. WRVO Radio. And so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. This first one up is, I don't even know how to say this town's name. And I can't blame the letters. There's not that many. Hokog? So they're saying Hokog veto scuba diving fee measure. Uh, Acting Governor Victor Hokog. Oh, that's who it is. It's not a location. It's a person. Has disapproved the measure which would impose a $10 fee on scuba divers. He said House Bill 19-44 was written in precise and ambiguous language that will affect the implementation and enforceability. He added the absence of a clear instruction to scuba diving operators, the Department of Finance, and the collection and deposit of the fees will make it difficult to implement and assess the fee. Introduced by House Floor Leader George Comancho, the bill's goal is to raise funds for the purchase, installation, operation, and maintenance of decompression chamber in the CNMI. 
Hocock said Section 2A of the bill should have specially stated Commonwealth is imposing a $10 surcharge and not on scuba diving shop operators. And then he goes on and gives some other details that should have been added to it. But what it looks like they're doing is they're trying to fund the addition of a decompression chamber. Uh, and they're hoping that it would increase tourism because they would feel safe knowing that they would properly be treated if decompression sickness were to occur. Currently, uh, people are referred to Guam. But that's a long... Is, did you, Mac, you said you figured out this was in the Philippines? This is in the Philippines, and uh, one one local area is not, not apparent. The the problem with what they were also trying to do, or not problem, but you've got to look into it. It's like you're saying scuba diving. What they basically meant was those organizations that are taking you out for dives, like if I was diving by myself for you, it's not a big deal. But they were talking about the dive shop operators are going to charge a surfie, or, and, and the only time you do that is if you had a charter. Right. So, And that's what he was getting a point that was a little bit ambiguous. He needed to clarify what the fee was used for, how it's to be collected, and how it's to be dispersed in a time period. So if you're getting on a dive boat, that dive boat operator is supposed to charge you $10, and then they're to remit that fee to their version of the IRS. I'm a- the uh, comment section. <laughs> Go ahead, Mac. You're on the same line there. It, the, yeah, I was going to say they had an article in there talking about tourists pay up to $75 or more for just a boat ride. And then they say diving uh, are usually costing $60 or more once you get to a certain place. So actually those prices aren't bad compared to what they charge over here. But still, right. it's a right. start of depending on regulation. depending on the depending on the uh, exchange rate. Yeah, I'm not sure if the Philippines is using. Let's see. Let's, let's find out what is the uh, the currency. I think that's actually the Marianas Island and Saipan area. I looked up uh, Hocog and uh, says he's a lieutenant governor of the Northern Mariana Islands. Of course, there could be more than one. It's a Philippine peso, and so if I convert U.S. dollars to Philippine peso, so I'm going to say let's do, uh, what was the fee, $10? Oh, wow, that's not much at all. Let me see. It's Let's see, let's do $100, $1. So one U.S. dollar is 49.97 Philippine pesos. Well, I thought it was interesting. He said $10, not pesos. You know, that would be interesting. Maybe they just, do they do everything in U.S. dollars? That'd be odd, well, wouldn't it? The references here for the boat ride and for the diving is in dollars, not pesos. Oh, yeah. 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 Because one peso is worth uh, two cents. So one U.S. dollar is 49.97 pesos. So maybe it is dollars. Maybe it's $10. So that, but uh, would you think that'd be reasonable? Is that a reasonable thing to do to fund a, a hyperbaric chamber? Is that reasonable up here? Well, uh, well, anywhere. I mean, if you're going to go dive at a place, would no, you, would I you, I'm just saying, you're, you're, you're like me, I'm not going to go on a boat. I'm not going to go pay for a charter. Well, I go for here local. And so I'm not going to pay that, but everybody else is right. if you're on a charter. So is it fair? I'm going to get well, the not only that, but then they're going to turn around and charge you to use it. Well, that's true. <laughs> so you're funding it. So you're saying they should probably come up and, and put, just put the chamber in and then get the fees off of people using it? Sounds reasonable to me. I think the challenge we've had in the United States with that type of model is that there's really not a huge use for the chambers. It'd be nice to have Rick come on the show again and uh, ask him how often that chamber is used for diving accidents. I think it would be fairly rare. I would agree. So your your cost of manning it, you probably never recover the 
you, you probably don't even recover your normal operating expenses, insurance, and other things. The cost, and that's is. that's the difference between that and commercial. Because in commercial, you put the cost of having to have one available into the bill to your customer, so your customer is paying for it. Is is that a, a surcharge on the end, or you just like add a certain percent as your? That's estimated? a third item you have to have to as part of your insurance, depending on the type of diving you're doing. Mm-hmm. We've well, been I, on some. When to go do a helicopter recovery in 220 feet, they had a barge with a chamber on it. Right. Well, I'm just wondering about how they how they invoiced it. Was it a separate line item, or is it just kind of all grouped together? That one I couldn't tell you. Yeah, but considering that if you've got the chamber, if you have to have the chamber out with you, I would probably break it out for a line item when they say, well, why the heck? Oh, you got you got this little boat that goes out there. Why do you? Why is it so much? You say, well, I'm, I'm throwing out this barge with a chamber on it. And you still got to have the operators for it. You got to have all the equipment for it. Whether you use it or not, you've got expenses for that the whole time you've got it out there. Now, in the commercial operations you were with, Mac, was it a chamber like we dove in Kalamazoo, or is it a smaller? Smaller. Okay. It also depends on the type of the dive and the quantity of people diving. Also, the, you have to have enough to, you, you have yeah, to assume everybody who's in the water would need to use it. Yeah, if you're doing sat and you've got three guys and a bell, you better have something big enough for three people when you come up. Now, in the case of a saturation dive, couldn't you use the bell itself as a chamber? Yes, you could. <clears throat> okay. But you're going to be cold. You're going to have a lot more gas used there. Okay. And if you needed to work on a patient, it's a little hard to get the doctor to go down there. <laughs> he doesn't like putting on the gear and right. going in. And on the other ones, you'll usually have a lock-in, lock-out, so you can get a dock-in or something like that. Okay. Okay, well, it, it's just uh, for something to be aware of our listeners in that part of the world that uh, they're, they're looking on doing some sort of fee, so you may want to give some input if that will help change things at all. Next article up is we have some divers talking about items they find in the bottom of Lake Travis. Now, let's see, where's Lake Travis? Is that? That's ha- that's Houston, area, Austin area, isn't it, Texas? Uh, since 2007, Rob Weiss has owned and operated Lake Travis Scuba. A self-made scuba instructor knew there was a decent market for diving. They realized there was an untapped market at the bottom of the lake. It's like Treasure Island, he says. We've collected 73000 worth of items, and that's an estimate conservative value. He calculates the number of findings and average price online for each item discovered. He said the trick is to look for trash. That's why he and his small team of divers take to Starnes Island off the shore of uh, Volanit. We call them sunglass dispensing units. The people on them are donors. Their job is to drop sunglasses, wallets, iPhones, GoPros, rings, and necklaces. And this according to diver Matt Jacobs. Sunglasses are easily the most common thing found in these divers. In fact, Weiss and his team have recovered so many, they create a sunglass hunter certificate class accredited by Patty. <laughs> wow. Now, I guess if stuff was fresh, because we don't make any money on the stuff we've we've done. I mean, we did the dive club did take stuff to the recycler, uh, which I don't know if we did. We ever give give everybody a weight on the on the show? I think we they ended up it was ended up being a, a ton when it was all said and done. Yeah, it was at least a ton because uh, I think we got about eighty something bucks in scrap. Yeah, so we did pretty good on that dive. Which Dave was there too on that one. So I they're selling sunglasses. That's not too bad. Well, depending on the sunglasses you get, there's a there's a big raft off that occurs over at the bottom of the St. Clair River every year, and you, you go out there a couple of days after the raft off, and you can find quite a few pairs of high dollar sunglasses. As long as they're not scratched up, I'm sure you can put them on eBay and huh. get 
good money out of them because some of those sunglasses, you know, two, three, four hundred dollar pairs of sunglasses. You know, I, I'm always looking for a good pair of sunglasses. I guess that needs to be my next item I hunt for. Is that what we should be doing for diving? Is is specifically looking for objects to use? Well, I guess you know, finding stuff like that. You've got to find where a bunch of boats like to raft off. So I would imagine over by the beach at St. Joe, wherever everybody likes to park their boats during the summer and then hang out at the beach, that's where you'll find them. That's exactly where I get mine from. And I get there early so I don't get the ones with the scratches. Because once the, the lens is scratched, they can be really pretty, but they're not worth a darn. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. So if you're timely in finding your stuff, rings are always worth money. Uh, GoPros now. If you find people losing the GoPros, that could be not too bad. Yeah, it, It's hard-pressed, though, to turn in rings because you don't really know if the real owner is going to get them. GoPros, take a look at the video, and you can usually find the owner. Those are sort of fun to give them back. Yeah. And iPhones, unless they're fresh, it doesn't really matter. Well, it looks like what they're doing is they're using some of these uh, recycle, uh, cell phone recycling sites. And I think that they're taking them, you know, they'll even take flooded phones. Uh, I just haven't found anything modern. Anytime I find stuff, it's a cell phone from eight years ago. It's, I don't think there's be much of a market for an old flip phone. We'll have to do some okay. research on Gazelle. Yeah. So I guess uh, yeah, if you're if you're in the right market and you're finding stuff at the right time, you, there could be a little bit of money. And typically, anywhere you find a lot of that stuff, you'll also find a lot of red solo cups. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a big market for red solo cups. All the drink has come out by the time it hits the bottom. Then we have, oh, the Michigan Preserve. I, I got these a little bit out of order. Uh, this is interesting. The Michigan State uh, University Extension posted this article, and they're talking about it's a series of articles, and this particular one is talking about the underwater preserves offering a unique view of Lake Michigan's heritage. Uh, I was trying to figure out why they were posting this articles. But they go on and they're talking about it's some of these almost feel like a research project. I couldn't get that link to open. Oh, here, uh, let me paste it for you. I the I think it got clipped when I sent it through email. If he's on Skype, you should see it already. It might not. I don't know how long Skype. If it, if you come in new, if it gives you the stuff that's already in, so I pasted it in both there and talks you. Oh yeah, now it loads. Yeah, uh, I like the map showing the preserves. I hadn't seen one of these in a while. Quite done that way. Uh, I think what they're doing in this map is they're trying to show the actual boundary because the boundary is uh, certain locations, north and south or east and west, depending on what part of the lake it is, out to a certain depth, which I think is a hundred uh, diving uh, sport diving depth, one hundred twenty-five, one hundred thirty, one hundred thirty. So uh, it was nice because most of the time people just do it; the, the, they just take an arbitrary uh, depth and put it out there. You can see in some areas the the preserve is very narrow. Uh, if you look up there in the the Keweenaw Peninsula, it's very thin strip. Southwest Michigan, it was is pretty decent, and then Thunder Bay is a little bit separate because that one I don't think they go on depth. I think they just keep expanding that every so many years. Yeah, whatever Noah decides they want. Well, yeah, because you know they yeah I'm sure they're getting their funding based on oh we're we're protecting so many square miles, so you just add a few more miles of Lake Huron and you probably can increase your budget. I wonder what happens when it start when they start trying to claim Canadian water. How that works? Well, they won't because that's not going to work. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole new war going on there. But they're talking about that the Michigan underwater preserves are being used as a reference for other states trying to duplicate it. Uh, 
it'd be interesting if this guy had actually talked to anybody who's managing these preserves. Because what we've seen is there's really no involvement at the local level in the preserves. I, I feel sorry for Jim because I think Jim is the president. Uh, I'm helping him by maintaining the website, but I don't think there's really any activity going there's on no locally. Funding. No funding. It's hard to do anything. No, it's it's, it's self-funded. The state doesn't then, give you anything. Right, and then the state wants to charge you for putting the buoys out and permits that if the preserve is working for the interest of the state, you would think the state would cut them some slack. Well, I think they, they attempted to. In the, in the case of the buoys, I think they did all the buoys under one license, and somebody picked that up. Uh, but I, I, you're exactly right. There was a while there where they wanted every shipwreck that was going to be buoyed to file their own paperwork. And I think somebody talked to somebody and said, you know what, that's never going to happen. Well, and what I think is kind of a disappointment is how many of these preserves have been able to sink the one shipwreck that they're allowed to sink? Have there been any? There was, I think there were some before the preserves were in place that were sunk, but I don't think any sense of preserve uh, program has been put together. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I don't think of anybody since the programs. My biggest problem with some of the preserves, the numbers that they publish aren't accurate. Um, the other side of the state, I'll just say that. I won't name the preserve, but well, uh, if you try to use their numbers, mm-hmm. for example, let's just say a wreck Kevin recently went to, <laughs> um, the preserve published numbers put you four and a half miles off. Well, that way they preserve the integrity of the wreck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it, for, it, maybe that, it, that might be the goal. It, it is called the preserve. That's probably in their mission plan. Yeah, I mean, that, that does speak to a little bit of that. Um, one thing that uh, I was talking with uh, some of the other members, Jim Schultz and I were, were t- discussing, is uh, putting together some maps uh, with the the GPS numbers out, if there's interest in that again. Because there were some maps. Uh, my dad had sold them for years. He got them from uh, some divers in Chicago. I don't know if you've seen the yellow dive mm-hmm. maps, all Loran numbers, by the way. Useful. But, but we were thinking about uh, doing an updated version of that. I would buy one for nothing else than to hang it on the wall. Well, that's what I was thinking about doing is that we would do them. You know, we'd have all the numbers on them, and then they would be scuba obsessed to branded. We'd have a logo in the in the corner. And uh, if you wanted your, like if you're a dive shop and you wanted them as an art piece to hang up, we'd actually have a spot where we could imprint your dive shop name on the top and, and sell them that way. So just an idea. I I've got the printing background. I'll give, I'll so. give it to you offline on that. I've got uh, I've got an idea for you that uh, is okay. rather simple. I'll give it to you on that. Okay. We can do that. Let's see the next article we have in the queue. Early scuba gear to go on display at a museum, National Museum. International Scuba Diving Hall of Fame is teaming up with the National Museum for a, long, a year-long exhibit which will showcase artifacts from the deep. Officially opening from 2 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, the items in the collection include the first aqualung regulator imported to the United States by oceanographer Jacques Cousteau in 1943 in a diving suit worn by actor and Hall of Famer Lloyd Bridges in the 1968 film The Daring Game. Also be an early underwater camera jury rigged from a pressure cooker bought from a department store Montgomery Ward. According to museum's director Peggy the museum will be the first physical home of the International Scuba Diving Hall of Fame. The display will also celebrate the birth and development of the Cayman diving industry. The exhibit will be the first of its kind in Cayman Islands. Early divers really wanted to be innovative. innovative. Museum curator Mary Peaver 
She said her response to repairing the artifacts to display, preventing what she called active deterioration, including oxygenation of the Graflex camera housing dating from the 1920s. That photo of her looks like she's getting ready to do some surgery. <laughs> Make the uh, Y incision and you start doing the autopsy. Well, you might want to remove the chain mail first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, got, you have to have a really sharp knife to, to go through that chain mail. Yeah, pl- plasma torch. Yeah. Uh, the Hall of Fame was founded in 2000 by the Cam- Cayman's Ministry of Tourism, an effort to honor those who have pioneered the sport of scuba diving, making it safer and more enjoyable. I think it's an excellent idea to do this museum. You know, a, a diver's Hall of Fame, even though I like to give credit for it, I don't know if that's something in my limited stay. If I go down to Cayman, I would stop in. But you start getting uh, a museum selling some unique or early dive gear, I might have to go in and take a peek at that. Let's see what else did they have. Do they have anything else that looked interesting? The Legends Gallery, focusing on pioneers of the Cayman Islands diving industry. Yeah. And what's that What's that item that they have in the front? Is that a, a helmet? Looks like a camera uh, Oh, that's that camera housing yeah. they are talking about. Cool. Well, hopefully they it, it goes well for them. I'd like to have seen a listing of what else do they have. Let's see. Maybe we can uh, do a, use Google. I did think it was interesting that the museum is making a plea for missing maritime trail signs. Missing they need maritime. to look in garages. <laughs> it's a related article. Oh, it was a different article. At the bottom. Yeah, but it's from them. If you go to those other articles, you'll look at some of the members of the International Scuba Diving Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Yeah. Well, I see the 2017 inductees was Dick Bonin, Krav, was that Menhun, uh, Gardner Young, and Kurt uh, Schaefer. I have to say I don't know any of these uh, gentlemen. Dick Bonin is Scuba Pro, the founder of Scuba Pro. Oh, okay. The other three, I have no idea. Everybody knows Lloyd, though. Oh, yes. Yeah, everybody knows Lloyd. <laughs> At least Lloyd. Americans. Yeah, I think uh, there are quite a few divers that have, uh, are are active today or, or got into diving thanks to him. They do have bios. If you go to uh, the Cayman Islands, uh, they have a, a web page for the Hall of Fame, and they have bios on the inductees. The other three are Australian, Bahamas, Bahamas and Austria. Cool. And then the next one we have is the wind-up pirate ship Caboose is being unveiled to the public. The Caboose was on the wind-up pilot ship. It was unveiled for the first time in the public an event at the wind-up pirate museum in Yarmouth on Tuesday. The Caboose was the iron stove of the wind-up. It was discovered by Barry Clifford and his team of archaeologists and divers in 2007. We put it in our laboratory and kept it underwater, said Clifford. We've been keeping it there until we were able to open a proper museum. And now we've done that. We put it on display here where it's going through various conservation and stay here permanently. The wind-up sank in an infamous storm in Cape Cod in April 26, 1717, and the caboose will be part of the permanent collection of the museum, a layer of uh, concretions, which encapsulated the 3,500-pound caboose, included a pewter plate and a number of artifacts. Author Henry David Thoreau mentioned the why he does uh, caboose in the book of Cape Cod as he walked the beaches of Wellfleet looking for coins that had washed ashore from the shipwreck. It really adds another layer to this, a poetic layer, and ties the ties it to the Cape in a way that just helps preserve it, said Clifford. Now, is that a technical name, caboose, or is that a nickname for that stove? I had just looked that up earlier, and it didn't reference it was 
It just said they called it the caboose. In, so the in reference to the shipwreck or just in general? It's in general. Okay. That's why I, I, it, it sounded like a nickname, like you're saying. Well, that's what I thought. It's like, you know, maybe this is caboose or, you know, ca- I mean, caboose in, in public terms is ass end or the back end of the, of a train. And you notice in that caboose, though, they always had a stove. Ah. And they had the stove because that's where they would keep warm. That's where they had their coffee, their bunks. Mm-hmm. And that's where the guy got out to make sure, you know, to give them the signal in the front so they could go ahead and leave. Yeah. Well, and if the caboose caught on fire, you just dis- <laughs> you disconnect it and you had the train drive away. <laughs> I've got an answer for you. Okay. company called U.S. Stove made a wood-burning stove or coal-burning stove with the model name of the caboose because it was frequently used on railroad cabooses to heat the caboose. <laughs> it's a little pot belly cast iron stove with four spindly legs. Well, that sounds like something way after this. Though. I mean, that's after the, t- the time of steam trains. So, hmm. It's the only reference I could find to caboose and stove. Yeah. But it could be something coming back the other way. It could be that uh, when was Thoreau? I believe he was 1800. Yes. Yeah, Henry Thoreau was 1817 through 1862. So it could be a case of by his moment in time, the nickname for a stove was a caboose. And so it had come full circle. So maybe that's not the original name of it, but just what he called it. Well, I looked up definition of caboose. Item one says a ship's galley. Oh. Number two, freight train car attached to the rear, used for the train crew. One that follows or brings up the rear and, and the other, of course, buttocks. But ship's galley is must we where it came from. Ah, uh, so the ship's galley and then the stove that was in the galley is also by association. And I'm, I'm looking at one of those stoves called a ship's caboose, and it doesn't look anything like that hunk of junk that we could see there. And uh, preserved. It actually looks like the stove that used to be in my grandma's house. Uh, yeah, well, this... also, it's they say it's thirty five hundred pounds. Right, that makes sense looking at this cast iron item I'm looking at. Uh, it looks huge, uh, and I notice that they're spraying it. So, are they still in some way trying to conserve it? Wouldn't they be doing some electrolysis to it to get some of these mineral buildups off it? That's probably part of what they're doing. It's probably already gone through electrolysis. You know, they've already gone through concretion removal. Probably just still trying to remove the salts. Yeah. Interesting looking. There's a video I haven't had a chance to watch yet. Uh, it looks like I'm guessing it's just the unveiling. So cool. If you happen to be in that area, stop by at Cape Cod and take a peek at a caboose. Now we have an article from WZZM Channel 13. Talking about the SS Carl D. Bradley, 58 years later. So it's been 58 years since that Bradley went down. It's one of the three most recent large shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. The Carl Bradley was in 58. The Cedarville, which is up by the Straits, is 1965. And the Edmunds Fitzgerald was 1975. So this is about as big as the Cedarville, isn't it? 639 feet long. Was built in 1927 and designed the Hall Limestone from Roger City, Michigan to Chicago, Illinois. Now, would limestone be, are they talking about like gravel that they'd be hauling to Chicago? Yes. 
So That's, they're talking they mine, about for they, they mine limestone in Rogers City, the crushed lime gravel. So is that for a chemical process? Were they using the lime and other processes, or is it for like roadbeds? Roadbeds, uh, just crushed stone, gravel. Yeah, they said the Bradley survived many fierce storms during its 30 years of service, but it wasn't able to survive the storm it encountered in northern Lake Michigan November 18, 1958. They said the Bradley was overdue for repairs. This is according to, uh, must be Valerie Van Heest. It suffered some damage in spring of uh, 1958, but the ship's owner, U.S. Steel, decided to keep the Bradley in service delivering limestone until winter rather than lay it up for repairs in early November. Bradley grounded in shallow water, further damaging the hull, but the steel, U.S. Steel decided to make one last limestone delivery before sending it in for repairs. After offloading its cargo in Chicago on November 18th, the Bradley sailed toward Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Repairs would be done over the winter months. Just before it entered Manitowoc Harbor, the U.S. Steel radioed Bradley Captain Roland Brian, ordering him to return to Roger City for yet another load of limestone. The crew was mad. They looked forward to getting home for Thanksgiving, but another round trip could result in missing the holidays for the family. And on top of that, the storm front had moved in and the lake started to swell. Rather than wait out the bad weather, Captain Bryan decided to go for it. By the time the Bradley was halfway across Lake Michigan, the waves had grown to over 40 feet. As the Bradley fought the storm, the crew members heard a loud noise. Seaman Frank Mays ran topside, saw sparks coming from a tear across the deck, saw the steam of flapping, uh, the stern flapping up and down like a dog's tail. He immediately knew the ship was going down. He and 34 other uh, sailors had a few minutes to get to lifeboats and auxiliary rafts. Only four of the sailors, including Frank Mays, managed to get in a raft before the Bradley plunged beneath the surface of the lake and descended to a watery grave. Two of them would soon die in the frigid cold. So 33 lives were lost. Only two were saved. Remember, that was the one that had three on the lifeboat. One of the the third one died, so there's only two remaining. Mm Mm-hmm. Great story about this. There's a book that uh, is out, If We Make It Till Daylight, um, covering the story from Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming, the two survivors. Yeah, they had them at the Diver Showcase a couple of years back. Remember that? I'm, I'm sorry, what was that? They had one of those gentlemen at Diver Showcase many years ago mm-hmm. in one of the presentations on this. Yeah, they said that. As a side note on limestone, mm-hmm. you know, it is used for mostly buildings, road buildings, not just buildings, but actual buildings. The pyramids, basically, are limestone. You knew mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But it's also used, and I remember it used in blast furnaces, because it binds with the silica that removes uh, the junk from iron. Okay. It, it's also used in certain forms to pigments and paints, and it was also used in toothpaste. Okay. Well, I, I was, especially since U.S. Steel was involved, they ha- I knew there had to be some connection there. And that, and that's probably what it was. You know, they needed it for their processes and then they, you know, branch into other things just to keep the capacity going. It says the U.S. steel firm had hired a company out of California to locate and survey the wreck. It reported finding the hull in 375 feet of water in one piece. As a result, the loss of Carl D. Bradley was ultimately deemed to be an act of God. But recent dives confirmed there's a massive tear into Bradley just as survivor Frank Mays reported. If the ship had been confirmed to be in two pieces, U.S. Steel would have been liable for not maintaining the ship properly, said Van Heest. In the end, the families received a settlement from the U.S. Steel, but not nearly what they would have uh, requested in their lawsuits, and not nearly what they would have gotten. It had been proved the ship had broken into two. And the reason they settled is, in my opinion, is they knew it had broken in two. And if you look at the, the records on it, they settled at the claims on this in record time. Yeah, they, they wanted to give people enough 
money to where you'd get it out of the public eye. Because I'm sure this yes. was, you know, the fact that, you know, here you had somebody who was just, it would certainly look by all appearances that money was the big motivator and safety didn't even factor. Especially when they knew that it had broken in two. And that it had grounded at some point. Did did you know how they knew it broke in two? No. They actually commissioned three divers. And do you know where the divers got their experience and practice for mixed gas diving to dive on the Bradley? No. Pawpaw Lake. Oh, really? Now, there's a book, and I'm trying to figure out if I got it in my library, that named the two guys who got together and tested out their equipment, and they weren't diver divers to begin with. And then they got with a guy who was the expert at the time on mixed gas, and they dope this sucker. And they went out, they told them that it was broken in half, they came up and they had this agreement they could not tell because they were paid by the company. Oh, so then the company hired another company to try and do it, to that not knowing that it had already been surveyed. They just wanted to say, is there two pieces? And it was. If I can find that, it's quite interesting because he talked about the part you don't hear about. Uh-huh. The, um, the destitute, the families actually were in destitute because they didn't get the monies they were entitled to. And they were really put in dire straits. There's a big section on that in one of Valerie's books, Valerie Van Heest's uh, Lost and Found. Uh, I think it's Legendary Lake Michigan Shipwrecks. She covers that with the uh, the guys that were hired and uh, the, some of the, the prep work they did to do the dive and the dive they did and some of the gear they put together. Interesting. Yeah. So there's always a story. Well, I always thought it was interesting when you figure, wait a minute, Papa Lake? <laughs> well, right, because you, you – because th- if if it happened today, you'd have bumped into those divers. <laughs> well, it's like it, those those guys who dove the Fitzgerald. Yeah, you know they didn't do it for publicity; they did it for themselves. So I want to do it, and they did. And they didn't broadcast it until years later. Yeah, certainly interesting. Well, that does it for scuba news. That's all I had this week. Now, Mac, I think you had a safety story to talk about. I'm not sure about safety story. Hang on one second. It's our, our article. Yeah, I hate it when my computer doesn't want to suddenly work. <laughs> well, it's only because we, we, we mentioned you. Yeah, you're never having a trouble like that, do you? No, ne- never at all. Computers always work fine. I hate that. Well, you know, you got a screen that's frozen on it and you can't move it. Yeah, that's just called, it's it's taking well, a nap. It's a little rebreather. Well, what I was going to talk about today and uh, was basically 10 rules you should follow to become a better diver. And again, it's nothing we don't know already, but it never hurts to repeat it, you know, because the more you hear it, the more li- likely you're going to remember salient parts of it and help you to be a safer diver. So what this comes out to be is, and like we said, as you're aware, you know, diving can be risky, but part of it's the fun and excitement that comes with diving, right? Yeah. And in your entry-level courses, they say you need you get to, to know everything you need to know about diving safety. Well, we know that's not true, but it's true enough for when you start out, you know, when they're teaching you to dive in nice, clean water, clear water, warm water maybe, to 20, 30 feet, you get a lot of good safety information what to do and what not to do. But it really doesn't prepare you for, as you start getting into deeper waters, different kind of currents, you get that through experience and or additional classes, correct? Yeah. And per the statistics... Your chance of dying on a dive is two to three out of every 100,000 dives. So the factoids is, if you remember these top 10 items, 
you help reduce that risk of accident being you. And the number one they always say is check your gear. And by that, they said always thoroughly check your gear before getting into the water. So how many times have you got in and you're like, well, darn, I have a leak. How come you didn't find it before you got in the water? Because you didn't check your gear out. Key items, they said then, make sure you know how to release your integrated weights and deploy an SMB. Said, so are you aware of where all your dump valves? And when's the last time you've actually exercised them to make sure they're working? Says when you're getting ready for an hour, you know, out of the ordinary dive, which means night dive, you know, how many backup lights do you have? You got your primary light. A lot of people carry Kim lights and generally a backup. And if you're going to go on a nitrox, did you calibrate your computer to the new air mix? And a lot of people don't. The one we always talk about and we try to do is plan your dive, right? Mm-hmm. And key items is what are you going to do? Well, agree on your depth, max depth. How much time are you going to spend out there? What do you do if you have a, a lost diver? You can't find your buddy. Do you have a protocol? What's your plan of action? Do you remember emergency procedures? So if you're diving with some old guy like Mac and he has a problem, how are you going to take care of that guy? Now, to me, that's very, very important. You know, rescue diver would be nice to have for a buddy. Mm-hmm. And they say, when you do make your plan, though, stick to the plan as, as best you can. You know, make sure you check your gauges because running out of air is the number one cause of panic, and that gives you all sorts of problems. And besides, you need to know that anyway. So if you're going to do a deco, you don't want to run out during your deco. The most important rule everybody knows is don't hold your breath. And that last couple of feet is as critical as the first 100 feet if you held your breath. And again, we know that. But that's one of the basic ones that you do remember, hopefully, your whole time in diving. Yeah. Other one, in which we preach, is only dive when you feel comfortable. It's meant to be fun. You shouldn't be uncomfortable in a situation. Dive within your limits, and that's a little challenging sometimes. And like I say, dive within your limits, regardless of how pressured you feel by other divers who want you to go. Could be a deeper diver, could be a penetration, could be under an enclosed space. If you've not done it, haven't had the training, don't do it. Don't let that peer pressure. And I think club members are really good about not having any kind of peer pressure. You don't want to do something, no big deal, don't do it. I think we're good about that. Like I say, if you're not up for the challenge, don't do it. Said, never be frightened or, you know, going to look bad to your buddies if you change your location or cancel your dive. If the conditions are not good for you, don't dive. Again, practice your ascents. Everybody knows to do it, but how often do you conscientiously practice it unless you're on a deep dive or you're doing really, you know, you're really rigorous to your rules? They always talked about fully deflate your BC before you start your ascent so you don't ever have a runaway. And we know in our club now, we've had several members who have been having difficulties uh, due to a manufacturer defect in their inflator vest, remember? Yeah. Hit the button, and it stays on. Even though it's not a full-fledged, it is continually bleeding into your BC, and you're, compl- you're having to bleed it off through your relief valve. If you were deep and had that problem, coming up is not going to be fun, especially if you're not doing it on a line where you got some stability. Uh, the other one was rule of quarters, and I don't mean the 25-cent piece. That's where you're going to divide your air supply into sections. And again, that'll change depending on what kind of diving you're doing, cave diving versus regular diving. Like they said, half your supply for the journey outwards, another quarter for the journey back, last quarter is reserved. And again, you'll adapt it to the situation. Deep dives, you're definitely going to plan to have a lot more air because if you needed it, you're going to be coming up. You want that air. And a tank leaking at 30 feet is totally different than 120. Well, yeah. Keep keep yourself fit. And we talk about this a lot. And 
and we've talked about how often do you need to dive to be considered current. If you are a NOAA diver, it's a minimum of three dives per quarter, up to 24, and after that, then you're considered current for the year. I don't think most of the people we know do 24 in a year. No, no, you and said three of, per quarter. You said that's a, for a NOAA diver? Yes. Um, the reason I say that, if uh, a little plug here, if anybody out there is serious divers and you want some good information from on diving in general, number one is the United States Dive Manual, Navy Dive Manual. You can find it for free online. I've got a copy. I used to have a regular. Now I keep my updated. The other was the NOAA Manual. It's about 626 pages. costs 50 bucks. I bought my first two. I have, today, my copy is online. You can find it free online. Those two documents alone, if you do nothing more than read, that's going to reinforce all the good stuff you learned and give you tons and tons of information for stuff you may want to do down the road. That's my little preaching for today. Other item, keep yourself fit. And as you do get older, you got to be careful. Lack of physical stamina results in overexertion, greater consumption of air, panic, and accidents. Tobacco, alcohol, fatigue, being obese, increase your risk for decompression problems over 25%. 25% of the deaths are also caused by pre-existing conditions that you knew you had before you went diving. So if you have issues, make sure you're attending to those. Know your vital skills and your basic skills. And again, how often have you practiced your emergency drills? What do you do if? When's the last time you did dump your weight belt, even in shallows, just for the practice? When did you buddy breathe or hand over your secondary system to somebody? Everybody talks about it, but how often do you do it? So when possible, always use the buddy system because it's still better to have somebody where you're at, not the same day, same ocean, which we've heard, same day, same lake. Yeah. Having a buddy is a good deal, and I try to do that myself uh, most of the time. And if you're not and you're doing the solo, you should have been really taking care of yourself, taking care of your equipment, and having your backup gear. So if you had a minor issue like loss of air in your primary, you got your backup. You got air. You got time. You're not going to panic. And the last one they talked about was use positive buoyancy. They were saying, again, a high percentage of diving fatalities result because of condition on the surface. And they did not, one, dump their weight and or inflate their BC. Because you get and you, you don't wait till you're exhausted before you try to do that. And that's the problem. Exhausted, over, overly exerted, then you don't function right. So those are the key items. Nothing we didn't know. But as long as you remind yourself of those same items, you're less likely to not do one of them. Dave, you teach. Any comments? Most certainly. Um, it's pretty much spot on. Um, kind of a little plug also. Um, the winter time for most divers is quote-unquote the off-season or the time that we really don't pound the dives out as much as we do during the more temperate seasons. Most dive shops have programs available through the winter, and if they don't, ask them. They can put it together. Um, I know that uh, in the southwest Michigan area that there's a shop that's going to be doing refresher class over the winter, um, kind of a little different, not your typical patty scuba tune-up, but just a classroom session with dive theory and reviewing some of the stuff that we may or may not have remembered some of the details uh maybe some updates for somebody that's had a few years since they went through a class and then actually going into the pool and and going through the basic 20 skills um 
also, I, I know for a fact that there's a shop in the southwest Michigan area that's going to be offering CPR and oxygen provider courses. And also, I know that, that uh, the same shop is going to be conducting a, a rescue course in early spring, depending on uh, temperature. But those are some things that a diver can do throughout the wintertime to, one, stay involved in diving, and two, improve your knowledge and your safety while diving. Now, you, you mentioned the rescue uh, diving course, depending on temperature. Is that if it's cold and somebody has a heart attack, you're going to have to do the rescue? Yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, no, that's actually, it'll start out with uh, classroom and pool sessions. Um, and probably, depending on weather, April for the open water portions. But it'll begin while it's still a little bit cooler out, uh, get the classroom and pool sessions out. And it's something to keep you involved in diving through the winter for those that don't dive year-round. I, I like the idea of the uh, the CPR and the uh, oxygen provider. That'd be, yeah, that'd that's, be a great one to get taken care of because CPR, you know, I'm, I'm one of them who it seems like every, half the time I look at my certification on CPR, it's expired. Because depending yes. on the certifying agency, many of them are only good for a year and they want you to take them again. And I seem to be about two to three years between being able to locate somebody to teach it and getting a class in. And regardless regardless of the agency that you're getting your CPR certification through, almost every one is an ILCOR, which is the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation Agency. ILCOR is a group that gets together um, every three years, and they discuss what works, what doesn't statistically, what's been effective, um, and they devise the training guidelines for basic life support through your hospital-level care, um, and that's why we have changes with the CPR programs when they came out with the hands-only CPR, um, stuff like that, and now we actually have the introduction of naloxone administration to treat for opioid overdose, mm-hmm. believe it or not, at the basic life support level, Yeah, as sad as that is. Um, so there are changes that occur. Not only that, it is a perishable skill, and remembering the fine details can make small differences if you do get into a situation where you're involved in providing CPR to someone with an issue. And with divers, the number one treatment for for every diving malady is, you know, oxygen. So knowing how to correctly administer oxygen is pretty much a vital skill. Yeah, we have oxygen on many of the boats that uh, dive club members have. Uh, There'll usually be oxygen on, and that's something to know some of the the finer points. Because at this point... Not being through a class, it would just be, you know, putting a mask on somebody and saying, here you go, hoping that's better than nothing. And, and these classes are very cheap. Yeah, most of the guys, I think we have two Dan sets and we have a couple of civilian sets. I have my own. Uh, but I, I like on a good O2 set having a pressure demand mm-hmm. with variable mask, <clears throat> and not everybody would have that. And you're talking about CPR. You know, how many people now know that that's totally changed from what it was five years ago? Well, I know every time I take it, and you know, when I was in the sheriff's department, we take it every year. I was amazed at how much it changed between classes. And I think sometimes it was a matter of, like you talked about them getting together every three years. I think that sometimes takes a, a little bit of time to work its way through the the instructors and the literature and the training to get down. So it seemed like it was always changing. I, my, in, in my mind, I think I would go back to what I learned in Boy Scouts when I was 12. Probably so, and it's going to be better than nothing. Uh, the last ILCOR actually met last fall, and the change has been implemented in 
just about every one of your your primary training agencies, the agency I teach under, uh, Dan Darvis Alert Network, all their material has been updated, and it's it's relevant now within now, six months of the of the meeting. Now, aren't you guys using the standard, which is now 100 compressions, two breaths, uh, if possible? The 102 has been the standard now for about five six years. Right, but they also say, when in doubt, just make sure it's, the airway is clear and continue the compressions even if you didn't do the breaths. Is that correct? That's correct, and the biggest reason they went to the hands-only was so many people were reserved about performing CPR because they would have to administer the breathing to someone that they didn't know or was questionable where they found that if it was hands-only, more people were willing to step in. Right, and if you had a pressure demand regulator, that that second man or third, you could actually do that breath a heck of a lot easier and more efficiently with a demand regulator. If you if you either have a manually triggered valve or if you are using a, a bag valve, yep, bamboo bag, it does definitely improve the efficiency. Yeah. Um, and in the diving world, CPR is a little different than on the street because of the fact that we're dealing with anytime you have a, a probable cardiac event in the water, we're also going to be dealing with it with some kind of water ingestion, and the respirations do make a, a larger difference with a water based incident than they do with the land-based incident right another side side note though that people also got to remember on some of the uh, issues with a diver is that you're still probably going to be in your suit in many instances if they haven't cut off at least the top to give you compression is you've got that you're familiar with um oh god i gotta think my mind just went off on a tangent here you know you can put you you're you're under compression in your suit if you have low blood uh, low blood pressure and then you cut the suit off, you can increase the blood flow, reducing the pressure in the body even quicker. Compartment syndromes. And that's little items that applies to a diver, but if you weren't a diver, you wouldn't know that. And you hope the person in the ER does. Mass trousers, that's what I was trying to think of. But I know that there's, uh, there is a shop there in the uh, southwest Michigan area, probably will have discounts for Mud Club members that will be offering these programs through the winter in any of your local dive shops, regardless of where you're, where you're at, is more than willing. To, either they have the programs already scheduled, or if you go in and speak to them, they can put something together for you. A refresher, and I know, Mac, you'd talked about it a couple weeks ago, I believe. Just because we've been diving forever doesn't mean we're doing it right. Sometimes we miss some of the little details because we just got out of practice with it. Um, you know, the pre-dive safety checks, how often do we blow through that and just get in the water and then, Oh, crap, I forgot to hook up my inflator hose. Yeah, right, because we're doing shore dives. You do that off the edge of the boat, you know, the scenario totally changes. Now you, you're you overweighted, probably. It doesn't work. Now you're on, you're in 10 foot of water, 20 foot of water, 100 foot of water. Well, like, like on my dry suit, I struggle getting the inflator on, and that's on the shore. Imagine trying to do that on your way down to the bottom on a 100 foot dive. Uh, been there, been there, done that. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, not th- that's the time you want to discover that you forgot the. True, uh, but you don't need it, do you? Because you got your BC. No, no. If you're thinking, but you know, as we've talked about, usually it's not uh, an issue of one thing going wrong; it's multiple things going wrong. So by yeah. being familiar with this and doing your your pre checklist, it's the idea is not to ha- to go in the water with anything yeah. out of sorts to begin with. Well, Darren, I, I think. I, I know where this place may be. I think yeah. we ought to mention it, don't you? Well, I think we I think we can. We we can give them uh, a free plug. 
Well, to our benefit, I, I think you're talking maybe Wolf's Marine? I believe I am. Yeah, so Wolf's Marine, for those who don't know, that is in the southwest part of Michigan. It's Benton Harbor area. Beautiful, recently being reconstructed downtown Benton Harbor. Benton Harbor had a reputation for years of being uh, not the safest, not the cleanest place in the world, but there's been loads of improvements. Whirlpool headquarters has moved downtown and done a large job of, of remodeling Whirlpool and Maytag. And 1,700 people now work in those buildings right there. Yes, right there within. You could almost, you could walk out the front of the Whirlpool building, throw a ball hard enough, and it could roll to Wolf's Marine. So you're in the good part of town, uh, downtown area, if you're a little bit concerned. Uh, And it it has a reputation, uh, Wolf's Marine, for hard-to-find, out-of-date items. They have a large... A warehouse, so they've got a lot of unique items that people from all over come to find and and dig up. And the uh, they happen to the owner of the business uh, happened to be early into scuba diving, so he has the dive shop, which uh, co-host of the program Jim Schultz tends to be doing a lot of the management of. So if you if you hear it plug, uh, it's not that we favor any dive shop. We always love the local dive shops, but we're a little partial to those in our 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 area. So we've got Wolf's Marine, you've got Sass and Kalamazoo, you have, uh, was it just H2O now? Yeah, H2O. Uh, and then you got Heart City. So we've, we're, we're kind of fortunate, uh, no matter what part of the southwest Michigan you live in, you can, not too far from a dive shop, but, uh, you know, and, and now I think is a good time as any to talk about it. We're coming up on the Thanksgiving Day weekend and, uh, Black Friday technically has already started and a lot of places have deals and I was in at Wolf's Marine. And I, I can tell you guys after the show because uh, I wouldn't be violating any rules. But I can't tell you what uh, he had. But if you are in the market for any sort of gear, you want to get down. He's got a red tag sale going on right now where some of the older, some of it's been used, some of it's just been in the shop and uh, for more than a, a few months. So it's time for it to go. So they've marked stuff down to sell. And there's some brand new in-the-box shrunk wrap this year's items that are an amazing deal that if you're at all thinking about that item, now is the time to buy because the price that uh, I saw Jim put the price on myself, and uh, depending on how the weekend goes, I may be back down there to get some myself. Like I said, I'd tell you after the show. but Yeah, I was in there right after you left. Oh, you yeah, were... did you see them stacked right there in the counter? That is uh Great dry suits, too. I could not believe how many dry suits they have in there. They had uh sale. Yeah, they had, they had white fusions, they had some Vikings, they had some bear, uh, all sorts of variety of dry suits. So if you are shutting down your dive season because you don't have a way of keeping warm in the wetsuit, even though you know that we've dove ice dives in 7 millimeters, a dry suit is much better. And there are plenty of dry suits. There are dry suits, six, $700, uh, and some less, some more. And I've heard a rumor that there's a really good deal on the dry suit class if you purchase a dry suit during yes. the Christmas season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the dry, yeah, buy the dry suit, get the class on knowing how to use it and get in the water. The uh, diving season does not have to stop. Nope. And I know that the class schedule will be up. The class schedule will be up for the winter time within the next week. Excellent. And if anybody has never taken a, a slam course, which is scuba accident, life-saving management, and/or rescue diver. I strongly encourage it. You know, Mac, one thing that I do with rescue courses, anybody who is already certified as a rescue or SLAM or equivalent, whatever agency you're with, you're free to audit the course. 
I think any, I'm going to be there. <laughs> any expenses that you know, any expenses if there's a pool fee or whatnot, you're responsible for. But there's no cost to participate in the class. It's a refresher for the rescue skills. I mean, that's a selling point right there for a lot of a lot of people to go back. Yeah, well, they are practical skills, and if we don't practice them, yeah, when well, you need them. Yeah, make sure, Dave, you drop me a line when you decide on the rescue diver because I think that's one I've got to do. And we need to put it in the uh, Mud Club newsletter too. Yeah, because I've, I've uh, you know, I've got a bunch of my dive buddies have taken it, but I have not been able to make any of the classes up till now. So I just need to carve out some time and maybe get those in. Well, we are currently working on the schedule for next year and this winter, so it won't be long, and we'll be publishing that and make sure you get a copy of that. Excellent. I'm kind of jaded towards that particular shop because I do happen to be their instructor. <laughs> just but you come, you come a just, long way across the state to do that for us too. All the way from Ohio. Yeah. Just for just for uh, fair disclosure, I guess. Yeah. But like I pointed out, any local dive shop, no matter where you're located, would be more than happy to set up a program for you. And if you can't get the program through your local dive shop, give us a call and we'll we'll hook you up. Yeah. And it depends on the shop. Some shops uh, wind down a little bit in the winter months. Uh, some of the, some drive shops, their instructors go south for the winter. <laughs> and uh, But I'm sure all of them will be more than happy to, to line you up with an instructor to help you out. And depending on the weather, we may even have an ice class this winter. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, we. I've got a, a nice uh, reporter who's interested in next time we do a formal ice diving session. Mm-hmm. And by formal, I mean doing it by the book. Yeah, sh- uh, shoveling off the ice, doing the spokes, doing, doing the, the spokes. But yeah. we, we want to have good ice for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, hopefully, we get some something before I get too heavy in the robotics season. I don't know. I'm torn between having a winter with no ice and wanting good ice. <laughs> yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> seventy degrees in January would be fine by me, but uh, I, I think we're going to go the other way. Well, we had that about four years ago. We had that in February. Remember, yeah. we had that nice lull, and I, I mean, we were diving like crazy in wetsuits almost. Yeah. yeah and then, I, bam, March came by and kicked our buttons. Yeah, we, we had a couple of years where we didn't get, we couldn't get any ice dives in. Uh, last year, I think you guys did. I don't think I got an ice dive in last year. Yeah, we got a good number in last year. Yeah, you guys did good. I think I was distracted with robotics. Hopefully this year I can, I can figure it out and we'll get in. Wait, actually, I think I did do an ice dive last year. Yeah, because we did Lake 16. I made that one. How I, how, you know, how my memory goes. That happens with age. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't we know it? I resemble that remark. Well, since we are on Black Friday, I was, I was thinking I'm sometime this next week or so, I'm going to do a, a post on, uh, just, just dive gifts, you know, items that somebody can have. And I was, I was thinking a specific angle on this would be if you are the significant other of a diver, what type of items would be good for that person to buy that you can always have more of? What is something that you don't need to go check with a diver? You don't need to find out what particular piece of equipment is. You're not buying specific. What are the what are the items that you cannot have too many of? A dive buddy. Well, that's that's good. So the dive buddy would be as if you if you're a non-diver, get your certification because that, that diver will appreciate having a buddy. At least I'm assuming it. You know, maybe if you're an asshole. Uh, they may not, but <laughs> I doubt you're getting somebody a gift if that's what they think of you. Uh, but a dive buddy is a, is a good one. Uh, Mac, well, you had a couple ideas earlier. Dive lights are always good because uh, even Kim lights are nice to have, especially on night dives. 
a small backup light for your BC is always, I mean, if you have no light, any light is better than none. With a small backup light, you can at least see your gauges. Yeah. Now, now in the but, case of a chem light, what does something like that run? Aren't those just like a, you can buy them at just about any store? Yeah, but, dollar store. Yeah. I, I, I bought those by the dozens just to put around. Mm-hmm. You put those in a, a gallon jug, put a little weight and a string on it, you got your a lit buoy. <laughs> you got like a little lantern. Yeah. So if you're doing night dives and you're posting stuff, it works fine. Yeah. Items like I like would be that diver marker buoy or a surface marker. Mm-hmm. Those are, if you're on the big lake, I always take one with me. Not too much the little lakes and the ponds. But any place I can have waves come up, I want me a good surface marker buoy. And, and when you say that, you're talking about the, it's a long sausage buoy that you inflate with air that yes. lets you be visible more than a couple feet away. Right. I have the Dan, I've got three of the other ones. My favorite and the best is the Dan one because I've got a mirror for it. I've got a Kim Light pocket and there's a one in there if I need it. And it gets way the heck up in the air. Yeah. Cause, cause how I, tall do you want that? I want it way up there. I've, I've got some that are six foot. Yeah. Well, the ones I got with six foot, Three foot of it's underwater to keep enough air pressure on it because it's an open pocket to keep it up. You yeah. can't see it. And I've been out there before when you got waves over your head and you're in that trough. You want that sucker up to your six, seven, eight feet if you got it. Yeah. Because you got to remember if, if, if it's bad enough that another boat can't get out and say they do come out with a chopper, you want to be as visible as possible. A head floating in the water is tiny. Right. Yeah. And that strobe light's going to save your butt. Oh, yeah. So in the but, case of a strobe light, you're talking about it's like a little two or three inch long strobe. It flashes on the end and you attach that. Attach that up to your BC. All right. I've got the old military type plus the standard civilian mm-hmm. issue ones. The one I'd like to have, and I probably, and if I was diving the big lakes again and any place that had a current, I thought the emergency locator beating a beacon for mm-hmm. the divers. And that's the one that it's in a, it's in like in a little waterproof container. Yeah, and, like the bottomless lifeline, that's one type they have. Yeah. And and uh, you, you open the top up, there's usually a little button you can press that will send out your GPS signal to uh through a radio and they'll be able to know where you are that you are an alert and I think some of them even have radios where you can actually talk to somebody over them. Within ten miles, right. I mean as I as I as I'm getting older, that's I'd like to have that. That's why I kept my I carry my cell phone whenever I'm out diving in the yeah. river anyway. Yeah, and if you've been listening to the program long enough there's a common theme that comes out with divers being separated from their boats. So either uh, are diving solo and they're by themselves and they came up and they got caught in the current and they're behind the boat. They got left by the dive boat. Um, you know, the boat, their boat they're on, the you know, has no electrical. They can't move and you need to contact somebody. So those are all ways or reasons that you would want one of these. And they're pretty reasonable. Those, I believe, are uh, three, four, three or $400. Right. You could even get a spot, and that's another type of device, and it's not going to be submergible, but I always have a basket with me. Keep it in a waterproof container, leave it in the basket. It, it's already broadcasting where I'm at, so somebody's on the computer can find me in a heartbeat. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to you talking earlier about having a, a dive plan and communicating it. If you are going to be in a situation, you want to let people know so they begin to know when they should be worried if they haven't heard from you. Yeah, dive plan, boat plan. So what are some other items? Um, I mean, one that I always Air and nitrox is, fill cards. Oh, yeah, air fill cards. You can never have too many of those because uh, if you're active diving, you're going to use those up. Uh, O-rings. Trauma shears. Trauma shears is a good one. Uh, 
So trauma shears are just a little, uh, usually like a stainless steel blade and a plastic handle and cuts through just about anything? I, they're really good, especially if you're going to get caught in downrigger wire. Yeah. Your knife ain't going to hack it. Yeah, and I recommend if you get those is, is practice cutting things because there are some items that they don't cut. So you want to know what they cut and what they don't cut. Uh, but they're a great backup, especially, like you said, the downriggers. Uh, O-rings, uh, you can usually buy uh, in these kits. Sometimes they come in a, like, it looks like a little miniature uh, dive tank, and you've got O-rings because it, it always seems like those will go at the least opportune time, and you can never have too many of those. Save a dive. Save a yeah, dive yeah. kit's another one. That's what I was going to say. Save a dive kit. Yeah. Um, and just about any dive shop is going to offer gift certificates. Yes. Yeah, you can go to a dive shop, get a gift certificate. Now, something that, at least for me, is snaps. Is there like a certain type of snap, like a double-ended snap or, or something? Go to the dive shop, some of those little odds and end container uh, snaps. I... As opposed to suicide clips? Yeah. The snap shackles are always good to have. And sometimes you can get some of them. You can, you know, if you want to splurge a little bit, and they're not much. They're they're one of those things when you're when you've got a hundred dollar order, you hate to add something on, but some of them have the bigger. You know, if you're diving in wetsuit gloves or dry suit gloves, some of the bigger uh, tabs on them. And you don't find those at the hardware store. No, no. The thing with the ones that the, some of the items at the hardware stores, they might not be rated for the conditions that you're going in. You know, we're fortunate being in Lake Michigan, so stuff doesn't rust as fast. But it's amazing even things that are supposed to be durable uh, may have parts that aren't up to being submerged and constantly wet or frequently wet. Uh, right, I, used, I, I was going to say, I, I use carabiners a lot. Mm-hmm. But I, the ones I use on my suit and my ropes are not those little aluminum doodads you yeah. buy for five bucks at Wholesale Warehouse. Yeah. Now, it, those are great for putting on your carton to clip in your mask and mm-hmm. your booties and your fins. But if it's talk about life support, yes. you want to get the quality climbing gear. Yeah, you, you want to, they'll, they'll have a rating. If you look on them, uh, there'll be something stamped on it. If it doesn't have a, a rating on it of, you know, how much it can hold, then it's just your, you know, they're for your keys. They're not for, uh, uh, t- attaching you to safety equipment. And then the other one is if you can, you can always ask a diver. You know, he'll, uh, he or she will be certainly happy to share with you some items. But I understand sometimes it's, it's, you want it to be a surprise, and that's why I think I'm going to work on this list. Well, gloves are always good if you're a grubber. Yeah. Oh, yeah I shred you... a pair every year. I get a new pair. Yeah, zebra mussels, quagga mussels are good at uh, taking up, uh, grinding up your gloves, and you know your your, your gloves don't go long. Um, how about uh, is there any sort of glue that somebody might want? I mean, is that an item that does it have a life? I use marine goop. Uh-huh. I, I guess it's cheap, and it works really, really good. Let's see. Um, I, another item is like uh, that I don't think a, a diver can have too much of is like no fog. Yeah, that's that's going to be fairly inexpensive. You know, kind of a stocking stuffer type of item. And if you don't want to go. for your dry suit divers. Yep. Uh, the, swimmer's ear. Yep, swimmer's ear. Little eardrops in it. The uh and the no fog. If you don't want to do that, you can always do. Uh, a lot of people like to use the uh, Johnson's No More Tears Baby uh, Shampoo. Right, and or you make your own solution for your ears. Yeah, for, for the ears, that's usually uh, alcohol and vinegar, fifty-fifty. Yep, and some people add a little bit. Was it borax? I've never put borax in mine, but if you did nothing more than high concentration of salt, mm-hmm. salt water, yeah. you're not going to have to grow in that either. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. That, I think that gives me a good starting point. 
Okay, so how about dives this last week? Anybody get any good dives in? Well, I got in the river, got a pre-dive checked in the St. Joe up by a fisherman's mm-hmm. in that Whirlpool Basin. And I'll post tomorrow, I'll double check, see what the biz is like. But right now I'm leaning towards uh, the boardwalk at Fisherman's Park. Okay. Um, but I did dive out, out there the other day. I had three to five foot in the river, mm-hmm. uh, which is not bad this time of year. And considering it was raining, with a little sleet. And there is things to be found out there still. So will that be posted on the Facebook page or the Mug Club yes. site? Facebook, and, uh, Facebook and the club one. Okay. Yep. So what Mac's talking about is you, is a downtown area, not is near the Whirlpool Corporate Headquarters. There's a, Right there by it. You have the Whirlpool Corporate Headquarters. You have the, uh, there's like a bank building, and there's a wooden boardwalk right there along the river. Uh, it's upstream from the drawbridge. And uh, you'll, you, you can't miss all the guys in dive gear going down. So, Mac, did you, you happen to find anything? Were there any good finds this week? Or I got a really interesting anchor. I posted a picture of it. The shaft of the anchor is three feet long, wow. and the articulation is is a hinged, but it's a square hinge, which I've never seen before. Huh? Do you, does it appear to be an older anchor? Oh, it definitely is an older anchor. Okay. I'm, I got to go back out to that same location and start looking around because there's more metal out there. Yeah, because I've I've heard that uh, in. Uh, that there were some patents that many anchor manufacturers are trying to get around. So that's why there was a, a period of time where some of the anchors today's standards look a little odd. Ah. Because uh, I think uh, Danforth is a specific patent. I don't know. Is that still current? The patent you mean? Yeah. Is that still current patent on a Danforth anchor? I don't know. Because you see a lot of anchors that are in that style now. That seems to be kind of the common. You have the, the Danforth, so you have the mushrooms, but patent... Danforth is actually a registered trademark of the tie-down engineering company. Boy, you pull a patent and you can find a whole bunch of them on them. And a lot of times what you're seeing now is companies will take, as a patent runs out, the, the Danforth patent, the twin fluke anchor. Um, its filing date was March 12th, 1941. So you can see from like 41 on, uh, there would be a period in time where you couldn't infringe on that patent. And I'm sure what they're doing to keep the patent fresh is that they're adding little odds and treatments to it, sharpened points and curves to to kind of keep it going. But well, that's a nice pat. That's a nice uh, patent filing image. I see them advertised as marine hinged fluke anchors, yeah. including Danforth. Right. So I would guess just based on 41 that that would be off patent. The specific items that were filed in that patent in 41. But that's what somebody had told me is why you saw some of these is that you're, you're trying to get that mechanism. Because you had your traditional, like you see, if you're a sailor and you're going to have a tattoo, you've got those anchors and then Danforth. The anchor's always a good find. It's almost like a golf ball. It just makes the dive feel official. <laughs> and you know you're on a good shipwreck when you find six or seven anchors caught in it. But I'm always, I'm always puzzled when we see anchors on shipwrecks. Is if you were a scuba diver, wouldn't you just go down and get the anchor? If you had sufficient air left in your tanks, uh, I guess so. five hundred plus. I'd be. I think I'm, I'm a cheapskate. I think I'll be back the next week to go and get my anchor back. <laughs> I'm, but I'm surprised how many wrecks we've been on. Now there are a few of them. I'm guessing like uh, when we we, we find uh, the Muskegon there in Michigan City, it seems we find a lot of those. Is that the Muskegon or the South Bend there? No, the Muskegon. Muskegon. There always how seems to be a couple on there. Yeah, I think those are fishermen because it's shallow enough. 
But some of the uh, the wrecks that we dive on, to see an anchor on, I mean, what would you be anchoring out that far normally if you're a fisherman? It seems like you'd be trolling or something. Unless you're trolling with an anchor, that seems like that'd be odd. Well, Dave, it's what kind perfect. of diving have you been getting in? Is there anything going on the east side of the state? Well, uh, um, down here in Ohio, I was out last weekend uh, with a local shop that I do a lot of stuff with, and they were doing a rescue class. And I played dummy for a couple of things and then went and did a about a 45-minute cruise, just check out the local quarry. I hadn't been in there in a while. And other than that, pretty much uh, all the diving I've been doing has been down in that lake in Kentucky with that special project we've been working, trying to find a, a missing guy. Yeah. Now, was uh, did Jim go with you? I thought I saw some photos where I saw Jim there. Yeah, Jim was down there with us last time, and uh, he's deeply engrossed in it now. Ah, you got him hooked. He's so, hooked. So the hope- challenge has uh, definitely bit him. Yeah, so hopefully once you and him and everybody else involved uh, come up with some answers, we can have you in the show and maybe you can do a special just on it, talk about what's going on down there, kind of the mystery behind it. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, we're hoping to uh, get a resolution on that within the next couple of trips down. It's just we're at the time of the year where the weather is iffy, and the biggest problem we're having is staying on point with a boat because of wind. It's one of those things I'm sure it's hard to visualize without actually being there. You know, backseat driving, you're always like, oh, can't you do this or do that? But uh, It is. It's, it's a very humbling experience. Uh-huh. Uh, you go down there wondering why everybody is having such trouble with this. And I can find anything in the water. Right. And after your first your first time down there, you walk away, huh, I get it now. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a very challenging circumstance just trying to pin down something in a very small area. And then when you add diving on top of that, the diving itself is the most challenging diving I've ever done. You know, you're diving mid-water column looking for a tree in a forest yeah. in rather deep water in very limited visibility. Yeah, just just hearing some of the behind-the-scenes on it, it sounds like it's very challenging conditions and circumstances. Hopefully it, it comes out the resolution everybody wants, and then we can hear about it. Yeah, and there's a couple other projects I'm uh, involved in with with the same group out of Louisiana, uh, Southeast Louisiana Search and Recovery, involving a couple of airplane incidents. And those uh, those are looking to be coming up with a solution pretty soon. Uh, have a lot of permitting issues with the Corps of Engineers, which that's always, anytime you're dealing with the government, it's interesting. Yeah, I think we'll have resolution on one of those rather soon, and we're getting close on another one. Cool. But, yeah, we'll definitely have to... Uh, Get the entire story when it's when it's time for the entire story to come out. We can put together a show for you. Excellent. Well, and then like you had talked to earlier, Mac, we're coming upon the time of the year for the turkey dive. The first Saturday after Thanksgiving, the Mud Club does our annual turkey dive. So they're in the probably the it's leaning towards the Benton Harbor area this year. Uh, backup plan would be Niles, uh, Michigan, on the St. Joe River. Yeah, I'll either be, like I said, the boardwalk or uh, Oropo Marina or Basin. Now, or how not. many people have said that they're planning on going in the park? I have not checked the listing today. I'll be more attuned to it tomorrow. Cool. But I know I think I had six divers and probably an equal number of people said they'd uh, try to show up to be shore support. No, oh, excellent. Always good to have shore support. Oh, and absolutely. I bet you there'll be some going to a place to eat and warm up afterwards. I, I expect it. I would be disappointed if I didn't go out to eat. <laughs> well, excellent. 
Well, once again, I'd like to thank everybody who listens to the show, downloads it. Uh, thank our Patreon supporters. We have Scott Hallberg and Vanessa Homiak are at our Dive Nitrox level. If you like to show and it's at least worth a dollar, go on to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to the Patreon links and drop us any amount. A dollar uh, certainly will help out. If you donate an amount, $3 or more per month, you get access to the show notes early and we'll slowly start adding some more uh, member-only type of perks. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. We're also on Twitter at scubaobsessed where we post articles all week long. And I'd like to thank uh, Jim Billings, who's been doing our show notes for us, keeping us up to date on the stream. So thank you, Jim, for doing that for us. Uh, you got anything you want to plug, Mac, before we head on? Uh, not at this time, other than Saturday. Anybody else want to come down to uh, check the Facebook site for Club and then come on down, high noon dive. How about you, Dave? You, got any, you want to do any plugs? Uh, biggest plug I can say is support your local dive shop. I'll take Kevin's role. Support your local dive shop. And uh, stay diving and yep. keep yourself educated, trained, and practice the basics. Yep. And Kevin should be back next week. He's uh, recovering from a day of uh, eating turkey. And tomorrow, I understand, in his occupation is a big day. I don't know. Is he, has he talked about what he does in the show? Or do we just make fun of him and oh, people figure it out? I don't think he's ever mentioned it explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. So we won't out him on the show yet. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that up to him. But. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow's a, a busy day, so he uh, is, is going to get rested up so he can handle the work. So let's, I think we're to that time of the show. Are you guys ready? Ever ready. Wow. <laughs> so here we go. An elderly diving couple had just learned to send text messages using their mobile phones. The wife was a romantic type, and the husband was more of a no-nonsense guy. One afternoon, the wife went out to meet with a friend for coffee. She decided to send her husband a romantic text and wrote, If you're sleeping, send me your dreams. If you're laughing, send me a smile. If you're eating, send me a bite. If you're drinking, send me a sip. If you're crying, send me your tears. I love you. A couple moments go by, and the husband texts her back. I'm on the toilet. Please advise. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a bad joke. <laughs> So it lived up to exp expectations. And, uh, Darren, I've got a sh short one for you to add in and make it a double header. Um, okay. This one is especially for Tracy, Coultry Sub out there, because he didn't like it earlier. Oh, okay. This is a, a joke from my daughter. Why did the whale cross the ocean? I don't know why. To get to the other tide. Uh, yeah, I think that one works too. Another good, bad, stupid joke. Yeah. So, on that note, until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Recording has been completed. Yay.